Amen. <clears throat> Who do you think you are? I don't mean that question in an aggressive sort of way. You know, you might say to someone who's been pushing their weight around, well, you, who do you think you are? I don't mean it like that. I mean it as an honest question. Uh, who do you think you are? How would you describe yourself? How do you, how do you see yourself? What, what are the ca- categories that you think of yourself in? Now, the world has no shortage of boxes to pigeonhole us in. Uh, married, single. Employed, unemployed, student, young, old, baby boomer, Generation X, Generation Y, pessimist, optimist, introvert, extrovert, upper class, middle class, lower class. The world's got plenty of categories to help tell us who we are. Over the past few weeks, though, As we've been reading through Romans, you may have noticed that God has been telling us some of the categories that he wants us to use when we think of ourselves. And interestingly, none of the categories that I just rattled off from the world, none of them seem to matter to God at all. The categories that God operates in are categories to do with Jesus. And so in chapter 5, we saw that all of us, Everyone we know, everyone in this room can be divided into two categories of people. There are those under the influence of Adam and facing judgment for sin and there are those under the influence of Jesus Christ who have been justified of their sin. And of those who have been justified for their sin, God has gone on and pointed out that since we have been justified, we are also at peace with God now and into the future. Those who have been justified are in fact in Christ. And we have died to sin and are slaves to obedience. These are now the categories in which we are to consider ourselves and see who we are. But God's not finished yet. There's still some more things he wants to tell you about who you are since you have been justified in Christ. And it's almost as if God saved the best till last because this morning in chapter 8, God now opens up an avalanche of extraordinary new categories with which to think of yourself. And in one sense, it's totally ridiculous that we're only spending the one talk on this chapter. This is the sort of chapter that you could have an entire teaching series on. But since... We're trying to get through all of Romans in the one teaching series. This morning, let me simply jump in on three of the main truths out of this chapter. Truths which I think capture the three main movements of the chapter and which together paint an extraordinary picture of who we are in Christ. Who do you think you are? Well, first off, in Christ... You are controlled by the Spirit, which is what the first main movement of the chapter seems to focus on. And it's perhaps best summarised there in verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, this idea, that verse, it's spinning straight out of what we discovered last week in chapter 7. Remember, last week, chapter 7 was all about how the Old Testament law was incapable of helping Jews be obedient. Because even though the law said good things to the Jews, they were incapable of obeying it because Jew and Gentile alike, we're all addicts of sin. We can't help ourselves. 
But what the law was incapable of doing, God has now done for those in Christ through his spirit. And so the Old Testament written law, which brought condemnation and death, it's now been replaced by what Paul describes in today's passage as the law of the spirit of life. Look at it there in verse 1. Therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. You're catching the logic flow there. The righteousness that the law always wanted, the obedience that the Old Testament law always required but could never deliver on, that obedience is now being met not in people of Israel trying to obey the Old Testament law, but now in, in those who are in Christ Jesus, who live according to the Spirit. Those in Christ Jesus who have their minds now set on what the Spirit desires. Those who are in Christ Jesus who are now controlled, not by the flesh anymore, but by the Spirit, who changes our heart. And friends, there is no hint in this passage whatsoever that Paul is only speaking to a select subgroup of Christians who have had some extra special experience of the Spirit. The thread of the argument here in Romans is very clear that this is everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. In the words of chapter 6 a couple of weeks back, this is everyone who wholeheartedly responds to the gospel. This is us. Because when we trust in what God has done through Jesus' death and resurrection, remember, he establishes a union between us and Christ so that along with him, we die to sin. We are now slaves of righteousness. And we have received the spirit of God himself to help us live out who we are. This is an extraordinary truth. I was reading an article the other day about the human brain and how the brain is so complex that scientists may not ever be able to fully understand it. Um, the brain has 100,000 miles of blood vessels crammed into it. It has 100 billion nerve cells within it. It's estimated that the brain performs something like 10 to the power of 16 calculations every second. In other words, take the entire population of the earth, the entire population of the planet, multiply that number by more than a million, and that's getting close to how many computations our brains do every second. And this article was saying that, that just how our brain does that is so complicated that we'll probably never be able to understand it. And it was making, it's an interesting thought, that the brain is so complex that it's not complex enough to understand itself. Which the more you think about it, the more your head starts to hurt. And I couldn't help thinking, how big must God be to create all of that simply by speaking? 
And of all those things that are going on in our brains, all our brains, every second of every day, all of it, all the, it's only sustained, it's only upheld by God himself. And Romans is telling us that that God is, is personally at work in your life through his spirit, shaping and changing and empowering our lives to work out his purposes. Do you think we sometimes give into temptation way too quickly, given the size of the God who is at work in us? Do you think that sometimes we get a little too discouraged too quickly, given the size of the God who is at work in us? Do you think sometimes we're going to be a little bit too small-minded and defeatist, given the size of the God who is at work? There is no temptation you cannot resist. There is no situation that you cannot get through with your faith still intact. There is no trial that you cannot learn from. There is no sin you cannot stop. There is no hindrance that you cannot throw off. And I'm not saying that we can be perfect this side of the new creation. I'm not saying it's not hard work and it requires real effort. I'm not saying we won't mess up at times. But what I'm saying is that sin has been dethroned in our lives. We are dead to sin. We need to expect more of ourselves given the size of the God who is at work in us. Who do you think you are? Spirit controlled. And if that's not enough, the passage moves on because the fact that we have God's spirit also means something else very profound. It means that you're one of God's children and therefore a co-heir with Christ of the new creation to come which is the next main movement of the chapter. And perhaps here verse 17 is the best summary verse, but I'd like to pick it up at verse 14 so that we get the flow of the logic. Verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's delightful. Dad. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, did you catch the logic again of this section? The previous main section of the chapter is all about having the spirit so as to enable us to put sin to death, which is great in itself. But the fact that we have the spirit is also a reflection of the fact that we are God's children, which is even greater still. But the fact that we're God's children, well, that means that we're also co-heirs with Christ, which is extraordinarily great. Think about it. Co-heirs with Christ. That's saying that we will inherit what Jesus Christ inherits. What is that? It's a, it's a whole new world, an unblemished new creation. 
few weeks back, I don't know if you saw it in the news, but in America there was a record $382 million Powerball jackpot which was won by an 84-year-old lady. And one of the newspapers speculated that the only person, people happier than the 84-year-old lady were her children because now they were co-heirs to a fortune. That is a nothing compared to what we are co-heirs to. One day this present world will disappear in a roar and God will usher in a perfect new creation and along, and along with Christ, we will own it. We will inherit it. We will rule in it. This is jaw-droppingly big and it makes a massive difference to how we operate in the here and now. And I think that's why immediately after talking about us being co-heirs with Christ, did you notice he immediately starts talking about suffering and it being a hard world at the moment? Verse 17 again, Now if we are children and we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, it's interesting, suddenly mentioning suffering. And he goes on and expands on it. In verse 22, he says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present day. This present world is like a labour ward, groaning. And we Christians aren't exempt. In verse 23, he says that it's not just creation groaning, he says it's us as well. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans, we groan. And not only that, if you look down at verse 26, he says even God's Holy Spirit groans, that when we are totally wrung out, when this world just presses in too much and we have run out of prayer, he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. You want to know what life's like? It's us groaning. With the Spirit groaning for us in a world that is groaning. which is a bleak picture, except for the fact it's all put in perspective because we are co-heirs with Christ of a new world to come. And our present sufferings and groanings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Last week, a soccer team named the Plateau United Feeders won their match in the Nigerian Professional League by a score of 79 to nil. Now, this is a soccer match, remember, 79 to nil. I worked out that on average that's a goal every 68 seconds non-stop for a 90-minute game. Now, imagine... I want you to imagine that you are playing for Plateau United feeders in that match and there are five minutes to go. So by my maths, you're up about 75 to nil. 
And in those last five minutes, however, the other team, they're pretty cheesed off. So they're playing dirty. They're putting the shoulder in. They're tripping you over. They're trash talking at you all the time. Do you think you'd really be worried by that? Like, do, would you be tempted at all to give up? Would you be thinking of, oh, I'm going to throw the towel and this is too hard? No way. We'd be getting up and we'd be dusting ourselves off and we'd have a big smile on our face because we're only minutes away from a mind-boggling victory. And that's us as co-heirs of Christ in a groaning world. In the scheme of eternity, there's only minutes to go before the full-time whistle and suddenly this present world will vanish in a roar and will usher in a perfect new creation and along with Christ, we will inherit it. And so the thought of giving up on Jesus, the thought of giving in to temptation, the thought of throwing in the towel, it just never crosses our mind, does it? Who do you think you are? A spirit-controlled co-heir with Christ. All of which means that even as we wait in this groaning world for the new one to arrive, we are more than conquerors through God. Which is the third and in some ways climactic section of the chapter. Verse 37, it's the best summary verse. Though let me here pick it up midway through verse 31 to get the full effect. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Extraordinary verses. When God does the saving, no one does the unsaving. You will never need more than God supplies. You will never be in a situation that God can't control. You will never be wrenched away from God when you are in Christ. And for this reason, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. Which is an interesting phrase to ponder over. Why more than conquerors? Like, how does that work? Why, not, why doesn't he just say, we're conquerors? That'd be neat enough. How do you get any better than being a conqueror? What does it even mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, I think it's all bringing together some things that have already been mentioned throughout Romans, and in particular, bringing together how through God, we in Christ can not only get through a difficulty, we can not only conquer a difficulty in that sense, but the difficulty itself can actually be used by God to make us stronger. That the very things that sound like they should threaten our closeness to God, in fact only make us closer to God. And that therefore we can be more than conquerors in the sense that the struggle itself strengthens us. 
And we come out the other side of it stronger than, the, than what we went in. Which is sort of what's being explained there in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Again, an extraordinary verse. Maybe you've heard it before. Don't, don't let its familiarity rob you of how profound it is. No matter what it is we might have to go through, God can use it to bring good. Now, it's not saying that the thing itself is good. Some things hurt like crazy. But it is saying that everything can be used by God to produce good. In a world that is groaning with frustration, in a world when our lives are being pressed in on with stress and anxiety and temptation and pain, through it all, God is able to bring good things into our lives so that we actually are still able and strengthened to reach the glorious future that he has planned for us to inherit. Even bad experiences can be used by God to produce positive things. We've already been told that way back in chapter 5. Back there, Paul wrote, Rejoice that, that we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. See, that verse doesn't sound like someone who's just a conqueror. That sounds like someone who's more than a conqueror. That sounds like someone for whom suffering can, in fact, even make them stronger in ways that matter. Because we, when we go through difficulties, we go through them knowing that God loves us, that he's at work in us. We go through it with a hope of a new creation to come, and we know that our hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Who do you think you are? Controlled by the Spirit. A co-heir with Christ to a new creation. And even in this current groaning creation, more than a conqueror, as God even uses struggles to bring us closer to him. Friends, these are the categories of who you are that should burn into your mind and shape how you are living. Because you see, we've got to understand, why is Paul giving us these categories to think of ourselves in? It's not simply so that we might feel good about ourselves. He's not telling us all this so as to address our self-esteem issues, although clearly there's, there's spin-offs for it. But that's not his primary reason. The primary reason he's telling us these things is so that we would be filled with the desire to do what God has told us to do back in chapter 6, which is still the only command that he's ever put in the letter so far. He's telling us these things so that we might count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. He's telling us these things not so that we'll feel good about ourselves, so that we'll be good, so that we'll be godly so that we'll be who we are. In the news this week of uh, the birth of little Prince George, it reminded me of a story I've told before, but which really fits this passage, the story of how Queen Victoria discovered as a young girl that she would become queen. 
the way it operated was that it had been decided not to tell Queen Victoria at first in her early childhood. It was decided not to tell her that she would become the Queen. It was kept a secret from her until she was about 11 years old when she discovered it for herself in an English history lesson of all places. And the story goes that when she discovered that she was the next in line for the throne, Victoria reportedly replied, then I will be good. Which is a remarkable thing for an 11-year-old girl to say. But basically discovering who she was, having almost discovered a secret identity of honour and importance, her response, I will be good. In other words, because of who I am, I will now behave appropriately. I will be good. And in many ways, that is exactly what Romans 8 is all about. It's a passage telling us who we are in Christ so that we might be good. It's a passage calling us to open our eyes to our identity in Christ so that this week, if things don't go the way you'd like them to, this week when the temptations come, this week when a hardship may develop at school or at work, this week when there's tensions in a relationship, this week when it's all starting to feel like it's unravelling and getting a bit too hard, this is a passage telling us, be who you are. You're controlled by the Spirit. Co-heirs with Christ of a new creation to come. And even in this current groaning creation, we are more than conquerors. We're in Christ. Therefore, we will be good. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for this passage as majestic as it is. Thank you for all the things that you have lavished on us since we have been justified. And Father God, we pray that you would cause us to die to sin and be alive to you, slaves to obedience as we are in Christ. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing.